Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Savante Myrick, incoming president of People for the American Way, who assesses the effectiveness of the January 6th House Committee investigation and the urgency of holding Donald Trump and his co-conspirators accountable for their crimes. Matoi Monroe, co-leader of the United American Indians of New England, who reflects on the current state of the indigenous Americas. And Donald Whitehead, executive director of the National Coalition for the Homeless, who examines the Biden administration's new federal strategic plan to reduce America's homeless population 25% by 2025. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Every night in the occupied West Bank, gunfire crackles as Israeli soldiers enter Jenin in search of young Palestinian militants. Since the siege began in March, 150 Palestinians have been killed, making it the most violent year for Palestinians since the end of the Second Intifada in February 2005. The violence comes as Israeli politics have moved further to the right with the rise of extremist, anti-Arab, religious, Zionist parties. Among those killed was Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla, who was shot dead by Israeli soldiers while reporting on a raid on Janine's refugee camp in May. In mid-December, a 16-year-old Palestinian girl, Jana Zakharan, was accidentally shot by an Israeli sniper as she climbed onto her roof to get her cat. She was found dead by her father. The girl's uncle claims that Jana was killed in cold blood, saying the teenager was shot in the head and chest. At the same time, 30 Israelis have been killed in Palestinian terrorist attacks, the most since 2008. A recent poll found that 65% of Palestinians living in the West Bank now support armed struggle, as the Palestinian Authority is increasingly seen as corrupt and out of touch. As soccer fans around the world rooted for their teams at the World Cup in Qatar, representatives of 200 nations met at the annual Biodiversity Conference in Montreal. Delegates at the COP15 Biodiversity Summit approved a historic agreement to stem the loss of nature worldwide, pledging to protect nearly a third of Earth's land and oceans as a refuge for the planet's remaining wild plants and animals by the end of the decade. However, countries in South America and Africa, home to rainforests and other ecosystems that harbor the richest diversity of life on Earth, demanded assurances from wealthier nations that funding will flow from governments to assist in the protection of endangered species and their habitats. Scientists warn one million species are at risk of disappearing forever. The rate of species extinction is currently on par with the devastation wrought by the asteroid that wiped out most dinosaurs. Today, the culprit is wide-ranging human activity. Nations now have the next eight years to hit their targets for protecting life, with few legal mechanisms for enforcement of the agreement. 
by one estimate, a staggering $600 to $800 billion is needed annually to reverse the loss of species worldwide. Stoughton Lind, a historian, attorney, and social justice activist, died at age 92 on November 17. For 60 years, Lind put himself on the front lines of struggles for racial equality, worker rights, criminal justice reform, Palestinian rights, and worked against the Vietnam War and the death penalty. His first teaching job was at Spelman College in Atlanta, where he worked closely with fellow historian Howard Zinn in support of the civil rights movement. In 1964, Lind oversaw the Freedom Schools, set up as part of Mississippi Freedom Summer. In December 1965, Lind joined Students for a Democratic Society founder Tom Hayden on a fact-finding trip to Hanoi, where he met with North Vietnamese leaders, costing him his teaching job at Yale University. Later, as an attorney in Ohio, his support for union dissidents got him fired from a labor law firm. Lind practiced law at Ohio Legal Services, where he represented workers and prisoners, including those involved in a 1993 uprising at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility. Once a nationally known figure celebrated on the left, over time, Lind increasingly turned to local union struggles and a low-profile style of politics. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Just before Christmas, the House Select Committee investigating the violent January 6th insurrection and Donald Trump's wider plot to overturn the 2020 presidential election concluded its 17-month-long inquiry. Members of the bipartisan committee voted unanimously to issue criminal referrals for the former president, the first time a congressional committee has done so in U.S. history. It also recommended election law attorney John Eastman be prosecuted on two counts. In addition, the committee referred four Republican representatives Kevin McCarthy, Jim Jordan, Scott Perry, and Andy Biggs, to the House Ethics Committee for their failure to comply with subpoenas. The referrals of four criminal statutes violated by Trump include conspiracy to defraud the United States, obstruction of an official proceeding of Congress, conspiracy to make a false statement, and inciting or aiding an insurrection. While the referrals are not binding on the Justice Department, If convicted on the insurrection charge, Trump would be prohibited from running for public office ever again. Your reporter spoke with the incoming president of People for the American Way, Savante Myrick, the former mayor of Ithaca, New York. Here he assesses the effectiveness of the January 6th House Committee in informing the public about Trump's multi-pronged attack on the U.S. Constitution and the urgent need for the Justice Department to hold Trump and his Republican co-conspirators accountable for their crimes. Well, I think the, the committee did incredible work under really, really tough conditions. They um, got concrete answers from people who did not want to talk. They combed through uh, un, a mountain of data, not just documents, text messages and emails, but also 
uh, video from a million different angles of the insurrection attempt on the 6th and of all of the streams and dark web activities leading up to the insurrection on January 6th. Not only did they compile all that information, but they presented it to the public in a way that, one, made it abundantly evident that a crime happened. And I I believe the most dangerous crime of them all happened, which was an attempt to violently overthrow the United States government and replace it with an authoritarian uh, and fascist regime, frankly. Not only did the January 6th committee prove that that is what happened, it's communicated, I think, pretty well to the public that that's what happened. You know, and this is a, sometimes a different than government. I could say if somebody spent 15 years in government, often we can do good work, but we don't communicate it well. And I think the January 6th committee actually communicated pretty well its findings. And anybody who watched uh, those hearings came away convinced of the truth. You know, I, I did want to go on to ask you specifically about the criminal referrals. It's pretty well known that these referrals don't hold any legal weight in and of themselves. It's up to the Department of Justice and Attorney General Merrick Garland to make a decision about prosecution of Donald Trump. What are your concerns about the Department of Justice? They seem to have been lagging here in this committee in the House, was often way in front of the Department of Justice in terms of some of the reporting we've, we've heard. There's a concern that you may share that the Department of Justice is very reluctant and, and concerned about political fallout if they prosecute Donald Trump. The committee, the January 6th committee, knew what Peter Parker and Spider-Man knew, which is that with great power comes great responsibility. And if you have the power to make a positive change and you don't do it, then the blame lays partly with you, right? And the January 6th committee, they knew, okay— that they didn't have the weight of the law if they recommended charges. That doesn't mean the charges were necessarily going to happen. But they knew that this is a crime big enough, an attempt that was serious enough, that anybody who's in a position to speak out must do so. And so they took this charge up and they did it well. And I think uh, I'm really, really concerned that the DOJ, which is obviously full of very smart people, might be outsmarting themselves. You know, they're thinking and attempting to do three-dimensional chess, four-dimensional chess, five-dimensional chess. They're saying, well, if we indict the president, that might make him a, the former president, that might make him a martyr. And, and I, I hope that that is not what's happening because, honestly, we need them to be as straightforward as possible. If they saw a crime uh, in the planning and in the attempt, then they should charge a crime because, you know, I'm very pro. Those who, who, who have followed my work may know that I'm extremely in favor of criminal justice reform because I think it's too punitive and does not include enough space for actual reform and healing and the improvement of individuals. But the mountain of evidence here says that this was not a mistake or a one-off attempt, that this was, if anything, a dress rehearsal uh, for attempts that could be made in the future. And whenever that's the case with a crime, whenever you can, by prosecuting, make it nearly guarantee that the same crime will not be attempted in the same form. You've got to do it. So the DOJ has to act there. There are certainly concerns that if the Department of Justice decides not to proceed on criminal charges against Donald Trump for his central role in this attempted coup, that the rule of law in the United States itself will be in jeopardy. And as you said, What happened on January 6th in 2021 could be just a dress rehearsal for the next time. What's at stake for the country and our democracy if the Department of Justice decides not to proceed on criminal charges uh, related to January 6th and maybe goes in for the easier prosecution, and that would be the classified documents that Donald Trump 
kept at his uh, Mar-a-Lago resort? Yeah, that's the right question. What's at stake? Let me get beyond the normal talking point about democracy and the rule of law and our system of government. Talk about what that actually means. If you live in America right now, it means you have some say in what happens in your town, in your county, in your state, in the country. There's a building being built next door, and uh, you have an opinion about it. You can go to your planning commission. Your governor tries to ban the woman's right to choose. You can stand up and speak out and fight that. If they pull this off, then our right to be free citizens is over. All of what I just described is what's at stake. And that would be dangerous no matter the ideology that attempted it. If it was a far-left faction that was trying to delegitimize elections and just take the government by force, we should be concerned about that too. But I think it should be particularly concerning uh, when we look at exactly what this faction wants. When if it's a far-right, ultra-twisted form of Christo-fascism that views the only appropriate thing to be as a straight man, preferably white, and that every other category of person is somehow less human. To have those folks in charge of every aspect of American life is extremely dangerous. And that's what we're fighting against here. This is, go back and check the committee hearing. If that sounds hyperbolic to those who are listening, check the tape and you'll find that that is exactly what they intended to do. That was Savante Myrick, incoming president of People for the American Way. Learn more about the group's call for the prosecution of Donald Trump to the fullest extent of the law by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The 53rd annual Day of Mourning took place on Thanksgiving Day in Plymouth, Massachusetts, organized by the United American Indians of New England. Every year, Indigenous people and their allies gather on Coles Hill, overlooking Plymouth Harbor and Plymouth Rock, the landing place of the Pilgrims in the year 1620. Their indigenous people speak about Native history, highlighting organized opposition to resource extraction, fossil fuel pipelines, promotion of basic human rights, and building solidarity with indigenous struggles throughout the world. A letter read from Native American political prisoner Leonard Peltier is generally part of the program. This year, the event was held in person and online, with hundreds of people attending. Matoi Monroe, longtime co-leader of United American Indians of New England, opened the event with reflections about the current state of the indigenous Americas. As usual, we have a lot of things to talk about at National Day of Mourning. Some of our speakers today are indigenous people whose nations are on the front lines of the climate crisis, as are indigenous peoples in multiple continents, suffering from floods, extreme heat, melting, the impact on animals and fish and plants. Land bases are disappearing and traditional cultural practices are being devastated by this. Despite this happening, climate conferences such as COP27 continue to have way too much useless talk without the necessary commitment and immediate action required to properly address what is happening, and they continue to largely exclude Indigenous people and voices. Everywhere, Indigenous peoples are resisting mega dams, lithium mines, copper mines, coal mines, gold mines, oil and gas pipelines, fracking, and so many other destructive projects. 
Many Native communities do not have safe drinking water, often due to industrial and military pollution, such as what has happened in Hawaii because of the U.S. Navy. So we say today, hands off our land and water. Stop destroying our planet. We acknowledge that the current widespread attacks on reproductive rights affect all potential childbearers. We also point out that a reproductive rights crisis has existed for decades for indigenous women, long before the overturn of Roe v. Wade. That crisis includes a lack of support to be able to bear and bring up children with decent food and housing and without having them stolen by settler agencies. It includes the need for free and safe abortion, and we cannot forget the former government practice of sterilizing indigenous women and girls without consent, something that is still known to happen in Canada and that has happened in other countries as well. That is genocide. We point out that violence against indigenous women, girls, trans and two-spirit people is rampant, the very highest rates. Our relatives continue to be stolen from us and killed, including right here in Massachusetts. So we say today, hands and laws off our bodies. <laughs> Museums and other institutions around the country, from Harvard to Berkeley, continue to hold onto our ancestors, by which I mean skeletal remains, skulls, hair, funerary items, and more. Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, NAGPRA, needs to be strengthened, and all of our ancestors returned now. We cannot rest until that happens. So we say today, hands off our ancestors. Year after year, we stand on this hill and demand an end to the colonial borders. We demand that ICE be abolished and that Customs and Border Patrol stop detaining undocumented migrants. We think, we think not only of the tribal nations whose homelands have been divided, by the arbitrary settler colonial border, but also of the many thousands of indigenous and other people impacted by US policies that have led them to flee their home countries. And of the Haitian and other relatives who are denied entry or deported by border control. So we say, hands off our relatives. You know, everywhere there are calls for land back and reparations. Our ancestors always taught us to demand the return of our lands. It is not a new idea. The land and water are in our blood and bones, part of our bodies, and we have never forgotten that. So ensuring that indigenous peoples around the world can manage the land and water is documented to be much better for the earth. As part of urgently needed first steps, not last steps, but first steps, 
to achieve justice and address climate change, let's ensure that no projects can go through any indigenous nation's land without free, prior, and authentic informed consent. That was Matoe Monroe, co-leader of United American Indians of New England, organizers of the annual Day of Mourning. This segment was produced by Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus. Learn more about the annual Indigenous Day of Mourning and United American Indians of New England by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On any night across America, it's estimated that 500,000 to 600,000 people are homeless, with about one-third sleeping on the street and the rest in shelters. With continuing economic fallout from the COVID pandemic, record levels of inflation, and a severe shortage of affordable housing, shelters are reporting a steep increase in the number of people seeking assistance. Outside of the shelter system, The number of individuals and families living in encampments or on the streets in major cities is also rising. In response to the crisis, the Biden administration announced a detailed plan on December 19th, with the goal of reducing homelessness in the U.S. by 25 percent over the next three years. The new policy is formally known as All In, the Federal Strategic Plan to Prevent and End Homelessness. According to the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, the plan includes efforts to address ongoing systemic racism at the heart of many homelessness-related issues. Your reporter spoke with Donald Whitehead, executive director of the National Coalition for the Homeless. Here he describes the crisis of homelessness across the U.S., his support for the Biden administration's new federal strategic plan, and his belief that housing must be a fundamental human right for those living in the richest country in the history of the world. I think they have laid out a plan that makes it doable. The previous administration was uh, really sort of supportive of criminalization practices that arrested people for being homeless or forced them into institutions. The problem with that is that it doesn't change their homelessness. Once they get out of the institution or get out of the jail cell, they're still homeless. So I think this new interagency council um, is a welcome change to previous administrations. Um, They specifically call out the structural racism. They specifically call out the negative impacts of criminalizing people experiencing homelessness. And it also talks about the solutions, really providing the level of affordable housing necessary uh, to meet the needs of people, both experiencing homelessness and on the verge. As with most policies, this strategy, does it does it actually come up with the money? Or is this something that's going to be debated in Congress and will have to be allocated by the legislators? It'll have to be allocated by the legislators. But even in the most recent budget, uh, there's some improvement. There's uh, about 13,000 more housing vouchers that'll go out into the community. Uh, there is a, uh, I believe, 
4% increase in overall homeless assistance funds. And they also just announced a government-wide effort uh, to really look into the issue of unsheltered homelessness, because that is our major problem. Um, over the last five years, we've seen those numbers grow, uh, the people who are actually living outside. At the same time, we've seen the growth in housing prices. And so the plan and also the current budget that just got passed um, really does make some significant increases in some of the housing programs, also those for elderly and disabled individuals and veterans. Um, so there has been a not enough yet, and, and it, there's a long way to go, and we'll have to convince uh, members of Congress to, to make the necessary resources available. But I think that this budget is a really good start in the right direction. As I understand it, this strategy also importantly includes people who have experienced homelessness themselves to have a prominent role in policymaking. Tell us how important that is. Yes. It's incredibly important. Uh, if you think about any issue, uh, the people who are most affected, who are closest to the issue, are the people who are relied upon to uh, at least assist in some of the solutions. The involvement of people with lived experience has ramped up considerably over the last three to four years. Our organization has been deeply involved in that. We actually have a program right now called the Lived Experience Training Academy, which helps uh, people with lived experience actually understand better those roles when it comes to uh, being a part of planning processes. We, we think that it's incredibly important. The programs that do it are extremely uh, effective um, because people with the experience of going through the system can really tell you, first of all, does the system work? Does it actually provide the outcome that it was designed to provide. And also, if there are blind spots in the way the program is structured, delivered, any of those things, uh, people with lived experience are valuable resources in helping to understand that. Well, we only have a minute or two left, and I, I wanted to end on this note. How important is it for our country to recognize housing as a fundamental human right to move forward in addressing the homelessness crisis in the United States? It is incredibly important. It's something that the rest of the world has already signed on to. Uh, housing should be a right. They're, they're, uh, the, the important thing about it and what people should understand is it's cost effective. It actually saves the community money when we provide resources for people with lived experience. And if we uh, address the issue of homelessness in a comprehensive way, it will help uh, bring down costs in so many other areas. And the most important thing, it'll allow people to realize the American dream. We were promised life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You can't pursue happiness if you're living on the sidewalk. That was Donald Whitehead, Executive Director of the National Coalition for the Homeless. For more information and analysis of the Biden administration's new federal strategic plan to address homelessness in America, visit our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. 
Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WRFN in Nashville, Tennessee, WEFT in Champaign, Illinois, KOWA in Olympia, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.